0: Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Johnny. I'm one of the pastors here at church. And let me echo Vic's welcome, those of you who are new and visiting amongst us today. Today, we're continuing in our series, a second talk in our five-week series on healthy communities. What does it look like for a community to be healthy? You could answer that question correctly in any number of ways. But what we're going to focus on over the next few weeks is that a healthy community is Uh, first of all fruit bearing it's going to be a place where it's peacemaking it's going to be justice seeking it's going to be truth telling and it's going to be grace giving all patterned after what we believe to be the character of god and things that are close to his heart Uh, this is our second talk if you missed the first one you can hop onto our beautifully revamped uh, website that's up and running now uh, and listen to that or any other talk that you want. Thanks, Big thanks to the team who put that together uh, and who are doing work on it to keep it going. Next week, we have a special guest coming, Cameron Ecclestone from Baptist World Aid, and he's going to be continuing our series, giving the third talk on healthy communities, focusing on how to be a healthy community that seeks justice, both within itself and in our world. So look forward to that. But today, we're going to be focusing on peacemaking, and looking at two passages in the Bible to do that. The first one was read out for us just then by Lynn, Colossians 3, 8 to 15. And the second one is going to be the book of Philemon, which I'll read out for us as we go. Uh, If you do have your Bibles with you or you have access to one, there's uh, some in the seats just below you. Uh, Have a finger in both. I'd recommend that because we'll be looking at both letters in turn. I'm convinced, having spent a little bit of time in these parts of the Bible, that they're very clear in showing us how we're meant to be expressing the fellowship that we have in Jesus. And that part of being a healthy community is that we're meant to be a peace-making community. Being good at making peace, at reconciliation, and restoring relationships, whatever you call it, that is critical in a healthy community because of how often and how seriously we hurt each other. And we do that as we do life together. And sadly, it's often the people closest to us that we hurt the most. There are lots of us here this morning. Our our church family has been growing surely and steadily. And as all of us walk together, we are going to have differences of opinion about things that are important. Sooner or later, we're going to rub each other the wrong way. There'll be misunderstandings. Not to mention our sin and our selfishness and our careless words and all the baggage that each one of us is working on. But from time to time, whether we like it or not, some of that is going to spill over in messy ways and we will hurt each other because of that. And because we don't always do conflict well, not all of us are experts in, in dealing with conflict. The temptation is to have barriers up so that not as much gets out as, as it could and we try to protect ourselves so that we don't get hurt and that other people around us don't get hurt. And our pride can kick in. You know this, our pride can kick in. And when we've done the wrong thing or when we've been wronged, our pride can tell us that it's easier, it's better to just sacrifice the relationship than to make things right. You might have seen it in families, in marriages, you see it in churches, it's in the culture of certain workplaces, there is nothing more cancerous to flourishing relationships than when you see people holding grudges and keeping score, hanging on to the past and refusing to forgive or to repent. It's ugly. It's always ugly. And I'd hate for us to be an ugly church. And so if you join me, I'd like to lead us in prayer that we'd have ears to listen as we come to God's word this morning. Will you pray with me about this? God, we pray that you'd speak into our hearts by your spirit as we consider your word today. And help us not just to hear, but to have soft hearts that would be humble to obey. For our good, and the health of our community, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Colossians 3, as you would have seen, paints a beautiful picture. It's a picture of the profound possibility of transformation and the hope that we could be the best possible version of ourselves as the Spirit of God takes us and transforms us, transforms us from whatever we were uh, to what he's doing in us. That is my prayer for myself. And we have a part to play in uh, taking off the old clothes, as the metaphor goes, removing from ourselves like old dirty garments, verse 8, taking off rage and malice and filthy language from our lips. We don't need to lie to each other anymore, verse 9. And the barriers between us of ethnicity, of social class and whatever are gone, verse 11. And there's a challenge and command there to put on uh, some new clothes, new garments that are fitting for the people of God, as we put on compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience and humility. Verse 12. We forgive each other and love each other. And peace and thankfulness is what we wear and what we adorn ourselves with. It's more than just beautiful words, I hope. It's more than just nice concepts. Can you imagine, I ask you to imagine for a moment what it would have been like to have been there in Colossae, that little house church that Paul wrote this letter to, and being there for the very first time, that very first night that these words and this letter was read out by Tychicus, the messenger, the one we find out at the final greetings of Colossians 4.7. Tychicus is apparently the man who carried this letter direct from Paul to deliver it and read it to the family of believers in that little house church in Colossae. Put yourself there just for a moment. I don't know if Tychicus was a trained speaker, but I don't think it would have mattered because we'd be on the edge of our seats, wouldn't we? Hanging off every last word, eager for news about Paul and hungry for the encouragement that he might bring. Imagine hearing this from Paul, who was the founding leader of this church, He's the one who brought most of them to faith in the first place, but he's far, far away. He's 2,000 kilometers away in prison in Rome for his faith. And you hear words of this letter to you. In Christ, Paul says, you were dead in your sin, but now you've been made alive. God's forgiven you. He's canceled the sin that stood against you, like I've told you. He's raised you to new life. And so it makes sense there's a new way to live, doesn't it? And so the content of this letter goes on. Do you notice how many commands are here, even in this short chapter, this short segment in chapter 3? This isn't some poetry recital. These are things to remember and to do. You can just about imagine those Colossians thinking whether they ought to really be taking some notes, getting copies of this letter from Paul, writing these things down so they can remember to do them. Even starting from verse 8, the commands come one after another. Rid yourselves of anger, Paul says. Stop lying to each other. Put on the new self. Clothe yourselves with compassion. Forgive. Love. And I don't think after you hear these kind of words from Paul that you could have just said, "Well, wasn't that a lovely list?" And that Tychicus fellow, didn't he read that very well? He pronounced all the words so properly, didn't he? Jolly good. Well done. See you next week. It's not that kind of letter and you'd be missing the point entirely and you know what to make sure they didn't miss the point Paul wrote them a second letter put yourself back into the scene imagine for a moment you've just heard Tychicus read out the last line paul's closing words in this letter where he says you can see it over the page i paul write this greeting in my hand remember my chains grace be with you and your head is spinning you're letting the words sink in and in the quiet, Titus, still standing up the front, speaks again, and he says, Brothers and sisters, I have another letter from you from the Apostle Paul. It's written to Philemon. Now, Philemon is the man whose house you're in. The church meets at his place. Titus says, It's addressed to Philemon, but Paul wanted it read to you, all of you, if that's okay with you, Philemon. Now, you're listening pretty hard at this point, especially if you're Philemon. I mean, What's Paul going to say? He singled Philemon out. And how about I read to you the letter to Philemon? You can pretend, if you will, that uh, I'm the talking head. I'm Tychicus. You can pretend that this is Philemon's house and that you're the Christians who've gathered at Philemon's house. And for completeness sake, uh, Vic at the front, you can be Philemon. He's the one who led the service today. This letter is addressed to you, Philemon, but Paul said for me to read it to everybody, if that's okay with you. So, Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing as we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the heart of the Lord's people. So far, so good, right? Vilemon, how are we feeling so far? Great. Let's keep going. Verse 7 says, what are we up to? Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, uh oh. yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Now, I forgot to mention this earlier, but... Uh, all the while, while Tychicus is up the front reading that first letter we call Colossians and the second letter, there's been another man in the room with Tychicus. Paul didn't send one man with letters, he sent two. And this other guy is a guy called Onesimus. And all this while, Onesimus has been in the room and you, the church in Colossae, who met in Philemon's house, you know this man, Onesimus, who hasn't said a word yet. Onesimus is rather famous, in fact, he's uh, infamous, is how you'd say it, which just means he's famous for doing bad things. Onesimus, ever since he's come into Philemon's house, has been sitting by himself and is looking very nervous. And the reason you all know Onesimus is because he used to be Philemon's slave. I say used to be because a while ago now, apparently, Onesimus had run away. Slavery was reasonably common in Rome. It wasn't quite the horrible kidnapping and slave trading stuff that you hear about in the African slave trade. But in the Roman Empire, a fairly common way to become a slave was that you owed someone more money than you could pay. And so in return, you work for them. Uh, you're a bonded worker. a slave until you pay off your debt. And Onesimus was one of these people, one of Philemon's slaves, or at least Onesimus used to be Philemon's slave until he ran away, until he had enough. You get the feeling in reading this letter that Onesimus wasn't exactly even a very good slave. In Philemon verse 11, we're told that even when he was working for Philemon, he was apparently, what's it say? Useless. And what's worse, it seems that it's possible Onesimus might have robbed Philemon on his way out the door. You get a hint of that in verse 18 and 19 in Philemon. Paul mentions the possible damages that's been owed. Either that or he's talking about the original debt that this man had owed to his master that got him into bonded labor in the first place. And I doubt Philemon, the owner of the house, had mistreated Onesimus. Because if he did, I'm sure Paul would have made mention it He would have mentioned it in fairly strong terms, and so Onesimus doesn't even have that as an excuse going for him for running off and not paying his debt. And this Onesimus, the slave on the run, does exactly what you'd expect. He legs it. He puts as much distance between him and Philemon as possible to get as far away as he can to start life anonymously in a big city where no one knows him. He'll be safe with his debts cancelled because they're all behind him. And so he runs. He runs and runs something like 2,000 kilometers away to find the biggest city of them all, Rome, and is in the clear. And it's in Rome that somehow our runaway slave meets Paul, the apostle, who by that time is in house arrest, waiting to see Caesar. Paul's imprisoned there. We're not told how they met. That could have been another great story which unfortunately we don't have but what we do know is that by the grace of god it seems this onesimus this runaway slave comes under the sound of the gospel that paul teaches even in chains as he's in rome and onesimus becomes a christian all the way in rome the most unlikely candidate this runaway slave finds the imprisoned apostle paul who also happens to be there and through him the good news of jesus Enters this slave's life in a totally transforming way. This slave finds new life and the forgiveness of his sins. And so Onesimus stays with Paul and we're told becomes very close to Paul. Paul calls him, if you look in verse 10, he calls him his son. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him back, who is my very heart. I'm sending him back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. So here is Onesimus, now a Christian and a great helper to Paul. And I imagine that as Paul and Onesimus, they got to know each other. In due time, the story of Onesimus' life comes out about his past and his history as a slave. And it just happens to be be that his old master was a man called Philemon who was also a follower of Jesus and also a man who Paul knew and loved. And though, though Paul tells you, he says he preferred to keep Onesimus, this son of his, this man who is his very heart, he calls him, of course Paul would prefer to have him close, but it's right for Onesimus to come home so he can make peace. That's the priority. Not Paul's comfort or support, even though he's in jail and could probably use all the help he can get. Paul's priority, and what breaks Paul's heart, is that there is unfinished business, unresolved issues between two Christians who he loves. And it doesn't matter how much water's under the bridge, He wants them to make peace. This is a first order of importance issue. And Paul knows the critical impact on both these men if they don't deal with it. Uh, Paul happens to be writing a letter intended for the churches in Colossae, including the one that meets in Philemon's house. So who does he send? Tychicus and Onesimus. 2,000 kilometers all the way home. And so here he is back in Colossae, back under the roof of his old master, who he'd run away from with his outstanding debt, and now the eyes of everyone in the church is on him. Let me finish reading the rest of this letter to Philemon. We'll track back a bit, start at verse 8, and we'll go to the end. Paul writes, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love, It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel." But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you would consider me a partner, One more thing, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends you greetings. So does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Do you think he did it? Do you think Philemon did what Paul asked him to do? Forgiving and reconciling and restoring relationship with this former slave. Paul certainly sounded pretty confident that he would. And Maybe the fact that we have this letter, that it's made it into our Bibles, that it was kept and remembered and was in circulation, I think is evidence that maybe something quite remarkable happened in Colossae in the house of Philemon that night. The runaway slave who was in the clear returns to take responsibility for his actions to own up, and presumably to ask for forgiveness and to face the consequences. It's insane. It's just not what runaway slaves do. But this runaway slave is different. He says he follows Jesus, and he walks the talk. Perhaps even more amazing is this master who's been wronged, perhaps even robbed, who sees this slave who's wronged him and he rejoices because this former slave, this man, has come to believe in the Lord and is not out for revenge. This master forgives his slave, cancels his debt, welcomes him back, welcomes him back as a brother. It's insane. It's just not what masters do when they've been robbed. But this master is different. he follows Jesus and he walks the talk of all people Christians ought to be the champions of repentance and forgiveness the two critical ingredients to making peace you need repentance and you need forgiveness that's our bread and butter we know the forgiveness of God we live lives of repentance at admitting our faults we do it every day with God And every day we receive the comfort of his liberating forgiveness. We know how good that is. Personally. And so how dare we withhold that sort of goodness in our relationships with each other. We read in Colossians earlier that here in Christ there is no Greek or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave or free that Christ is all and is in all. And so he continues, Therefore, as God's chosen people, bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, because as members of one body, you were called to peace. So now comes the pointy end of the stick, where I ask you, are you up for this? Not in theory, But for real? Are you up for doing this and living this? Being Philemon and taking forgiveness seriously. Being Onesimus and taking repentance seriously. Being Paul and being so concerned for his brothers that he'd make them take peace, he'd make them take peacemaking seriously. I know, and you do as well. There are significant barriers that make peacemaking hard. You know how hard it is to forgive someone who's hurt you, to swallow the pain of an offense. That's costly. And you know how hard it is to say, I'm sorry, it's my fault. I take responsibility. Can you forgive me? because that is also costly. And it's so much easier, it feels so much easier to just leave bad situations alone so you don't get shot in the crossfire. Yes, it's hard. But that is where the rubber really hits the road. You want to see how real your faith is? Test it in how consistently you apply what God's done in your life to the relationships with the people around you. Where both parties, particularly where both parties, you both say you're following Jesus, you have even less excuse. Because the peace that Jesus has established between us and God, that's what we share in common with every other believer. You and I have found forgiveness and life in Jesus. You and I have become children of God, and we call God our Father. And so, if my Father and your Father is the same person, then we're family. We're one, which means you might have hurt me and we'll hurt each other sometimes. And we might not agree, but at the end of the day, I can praise God for what he's done in you and you should be able to praise God for what he's done in me. And neither of us are perfect this side of glory. But we try to love because God first loved us. We try to forgive because God first forgave all of us. And would you let his grace teach you to stop your pride? Would you let his love compel us to lay down the barriers that we want to put up between us and him and between us and each other? You know this in theory. So let's find ways to express this in practice. If there is a brother or a sister who has wronged you in the past, maybe a long time ago, or maybe just this week, and you're still carrying that, particularly if they're sitting in this room with you today, whether the hurt was big or whether the hurt was small, will you consider doing the most unheard of thing in this world and choose, even now, to cancel that debt off your mental ledger, And forgive them freely and fully today. Just like the Lord forgave you. Or if you're the one who needs forgiveness, would you stop running away and stop making excuses? For the sake of relationship, stop avoiding and be humble and take responsibility for what you've done. Find who you've wronged and say that you're sorry. Or maybe you know there's unresolved stuff between two Christians who've let something get between them so that they're not relating in the way that they should anymore. It's not your beef, but you know about it. Would you pray earnestly for opportunity to help them make peace? Make that phone call. Have that face-to-face or at least write that letter or email to get things started, whatever it is, would you commit yourself to having the peace of Christ rule in the heart of our community that it might be for our joy and for his glory? Amen.